This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was the whole reason that the Lord Jesus came to earth as a baby, to be crucified as the God-man for our sins and to be raised to life for our justification. The whole world needs to hear this good news. We all agree about that. So why are Christians so often reluctant to share this good news with lost people? Well, of course, there are many reasons for that. But if one of your reasons for neglecting of evangelism is discomfort or awkwardness, then you will want to stay tuned to learn a little bit more about how to share the gospel in your daily life. We're going to talk about it now with Dave Sterrett, who is president of Disruptive Truth and author of the book we'll be discussing, which is called Jesus Conversations, Effective Everyday Engagement. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for being here. This is a good question that you pose at the outset. How much do we really love people who are lost? And I thought, wow, that's very convicting, you know, because I know that I don't love people who are lost nearly as much as the Lord would want me to. I'm sure I fail on that score. What is your take on that? What do you think is the level of love that Christians tend to have for the lost right now? Well, I think with all of us, I think we need to be reminded of this. I mean, we are facing a lot in our culture. We have seen so many changes in our culture. And I think there's several extremes that Christians have on this. One of the issues uh, or one of the ways that I, I see a lot of Christians is to have kind of this false love of tolerance to just kind of go with the culture and to uh, tell people whatever they want to hear. But then there's other of us. I, I, I share... Uh, I've heard your show, and we share many of the same convictions, and we're concerned about where our culture is headed to this radical left. And and these are things that should get us mad, but sometimes I get just so busy with my life as well that we need to just be reminded that these are people around us that God loves, and that's how we were. Christ pursued a relationship with us, and He has cleansed us of all our sins. And, you know, the culture that... Paul was living in in Rome, he had quite an exchange of radical ideas from the Romans, from the Greeks when he was at Mars Hill in Acts 17, from the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and yet he did not compromise on truth, but he had a compassion for those people. And I need to remind myself of this, and that's why I wrote the first chapter on uh, just reminding us how much do we really love people who are lost. Right. Well, one of the things that came up, I know, in some research recently, I don't know how long ago it was because I cover a lot of polling, but it was this idea, I think, among some of the younger generations of Christians that, you know, evangelism really is not a good thing because you're you're telling people that they need to change. I mean, what do you make of that mentality? Christians ought to know better. Is that a matter of moving away from biblical truth about where 
unconverted sinners will go, which is hell. I mean, there's a real hell and a real heaven. And if we grasp that, perhaps we'd have more urgency. Where, where has that doctrine gone? I think one of the things we failed at in our churches is, is evangelism training. Back in the 80s, the 90s, a lot of these groups, Campus Crusade, D. James Kennedy, uh, Evangelism Explosion, uh, Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws, we were training believers of how to proclaim the gospel. We've moved away from that, and we've kind of created some of the fastest-growing churches are these seeker-friendly churches. Not all of it is bad, but what we have done as a culture is we've become so dependent on our pastor that your average church goer, your average uh, student in youth ministry does not know how to articulate the truth of the gospel. So we need to proclaim the gospel, not just the good news, but also the bad news. The bad news says that there's a law written on our hearts that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned. We have rebelled against a holy and just God. And so we need to proclaim these truths and remind us to our congregations and equip them how to explain this. You know, you're right. Uh, I think this is in Barna's research that they did a survey in many professing millennials, and even more so with Generation Z. They just said evangelism is wrong. We shouldn't be proselytizing. Yeah. But I use this example. Janet, my full-time job is in medical sales. I, I work in pharma. I work with uh, an innovative company, and we help lung cancer patients and skin cancer patients. Well, there's a lot of money and a lot of passion about cancer, regardless of people's ethnicity, regardless of their religious affiliation or political views, people are passionate about finding a cure for cancer. But if we found a cure for cancer and we knew that we had the cure, it would be unloving for us to not explain that, to not share that information with other people. And we have a problem in our own lives. The world has a problem that is sin, but the good news, the gospel, the remedy of this problem is the death of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and we must proclaim that good news to other people. Well, right. Now, when you look at some of the lists in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, though, uh, and this jogged my memory when you were saying people depend, depend too much on their pastors, and I agree with you on that, but then they'll point to, well, God appointed some as evangelists, so why do I have to evangelize? That's not my gift. How do we get out of that particular claim? Yeah, great question. I hear this one a whole lot. And I think it's true that some people are unusually gifted in certain ways. We think about the impact that Billy Graham had, you know, in the 20th century, packing out stadiums and so forth. And then we may think about our favorite pastor who's just gifted in this area. But the good news of uh, sharing the gospel, of, um, of just proclaiming the truth of Jesus to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to those people around us who don't believe the way we do— that's not just up to our pastor, that's up to us. The Great Commission Jesus gave to a crowd with his disciples and other people uh, in addition to the 12 who were there. And so that's for all of us to proclaim the good news. I mean, let's suppose, Janet, you know, I, I just, I'm living in Ohio, I just moved here, but I was living in, in, in Dallas for a while, and I think that's where I first met you. But let's suppose that my church had a outreach to help, you know, the the poor people who are working on homes. And I just said, hey, can't do it. Serving isn't my gift. I can't serve. (laughs) Well, most people would just look at me like, yeah, you're selfish. And I think the same, you know, rightfully so. There are some people who are unusually gifted in serving, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't roll up our sleeves and serve in some capacity. And I think the same is true with evangelism. Not everybody's going to be a preacher. 
but there are people around us in our sphere of influence, our neighbors, our co-workers, who may never meet our pastors. And God is going to use you. He's going to use me to proclaim that good news to them. Yeah, well said. You talk about a big turning point in your life, Dave, when it came to talking about Jesus to others. What happened to you? Janet, I grew up in a Christian family, and and I believe the gospel was true. When I was 17 years old, I was doubting my salvation. I just wasn't vocal about Jesus. I mean, you could ask me about things that I was passionate about, like basketball, um, and I could tell you all about my favorite players and stats at that time. It was the 90s growing up. I was a big fan of country music. I had a guitar, and I was learning songs by Garth Brooks and George Strait, and I could have rattled off all this. You know, I could have sang the lyrics to my friends. But if you would have asked me things about Jesus in the Bible or Bible verses, I would have believed that it was true, but I really would have stumbled about um, what I believed, even though I was a pastor's kid and went to a Christian school. So a turning point in my life was when I was 17. I heard an invitation at an event, and the, the preacher was saying, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Because he said that a lot of us are afraid to speak up about Jesus because he's really not number one. There's other things that we're more passionate about. There's things that we love more than Jesus. And so I remember responding to this altar call and made, making a public confession of my faith. And it changed my life. Mm. And I began to notice a difference. That next year, I went off to a boarding school to play basketball called Oak Hill Academy. And I was surrounded with people who did not believe the way I did. I had Muslim friends. I had a pastor who would stand up and he would say prayers like, Dear Lord, some of us call you Allah and some of us call you Jesus. But we know that you're a God of tolerance. And and those moments really challenged me because my parents weren't around and I had to ask myself the question, why do I believe what I believe? Yeah, Dave, it's such a good, good story to jump off on for our next segment. Dave Starrett with us. Jesus Conversations is the name of his book. We'll be coming back on Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. For those of us who live in America, it may be hard to believe, but there are people in the country of Lebanon who have never heard about Jesus. That's exactly why Heart for Lebanon is there, working in the nation that's home to more than two million Syrian refugee families who have arrived there to escape civil war and terrorism. But every day, Heart for Lebanon is there, reaching out to these needy families in Jesus' name, telling them about him and providing food, Christian education, and survival essentials. And the Lord is changing their lives. Let me tell you about one of those refugees, Hanifa, who is 10 years old. She lost her mother when she was just a toddler, but Heart for Lebanon met her as they were delivering food portions to her family. With no opportunity for formal education, Hanifa wakes her father up early in the morning when Heart for Lebanon's educational fun truck is scheduled to arrive. Recently, during a skit about God's love, Hanifa placed her faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And now, because her father is illiterate, she's reading the Bible to him each evening. This family, although currently living in very tough times, is slowly starting to realize the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ and the hope that only reaches them because people like you give to get the gospel to them. Your single investment of just $116 helps someone like Hanifa and her family with supplies needed to survive 
the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. Perhaps you could help a family like this for an entire year by joining our Hope Provider team at just $29 a month. Whatever you can do, please call now. 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. These families need immediate help. More than that, they need Jesus and they need you. Please call now. The number is 888-247-5499. That number again, 888-247-5499. Thank you. And God bless you for your generosity. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I think we could all use a little bit of help and a few tips when it comes to evangelism. It is difficult sometimes for us, even if we want to share the gospel with a friend or family member, neighbor, or maybe a stranger sitting next to us on a bus or an airplane, but it's kind of awkward sometimes trying to bring Jesus up and trying to get a spiritual conversation started. Dave Sterrett is here to help us with that from Disruptive Truth. The name of his book is Jesus Conversations. Dave, before the break, you were telling your story about how you gave your life to the Lord really as the Lord of your life at this altar call when you were 17. And that was a period in your life when you had previously been doubting your faith a little bit. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people can identify with that and say, It's easy to say you're a Christian, but it's another thing to be an on-fire Christian who's interested in evangelism. Now, when you get to the point, for those listeners who say, I am interested in evangelism, I'm just not really sure how I should go about doing this, what would you recommend is a good way to start a conversation with the intention of sharing the gospel? I mean, I think the first thing is we can just say hi to people, and we can become a great noticer. One of the things that I do in this chapter is just use some conversational skills, uh, and I cite a podcast I listened to from Harvard Business Review, just about having conversations, about becoming an initiator. I think this will help us in all of life. It will help um, us in our business, if you're a teacher, if you're an educator. Uh, if a person is listening, they're single. It will help in their uh, dating, if a person is a parent. But it can be applied to evangelism as well. If we just be, start by saying hi I use an acronym that I learned from uh, an evangelist named Rice Brooks. That acronym is SALT, S-A-L-T. And I just say, S, we should S, start the conversation. A, ask questions. L, listen. T, tell the story. And if we just around us, whether it's our coworkers, people that we are, maybe we're buying a coffee and we notice the person has a tattoo, we can become a noticer and ask them, well, what, what is the meaning of that tattoo? Or perhaps we see our neighbor and their pet. We can start just by saying hi. And as we listen to that person, we can allow for clues about their life, about maybe an obstacle they were facing, or maybe some moral dilemma that they are facing, or maybe they're going through a struggle in their health. These are all opportunity, opportunities, opportunities for us to begin to talk about Christ or talk about faith. And um, so I just say start conversations, ask questions, and then listen. And that will open up the door for us to tell the story. Right. Now, when you get to the sharing the gospel portion of the conversation, if you're able to get to that point in a conversation, 
What do you like to use? For example, you have the four spiritual laws or you can use the Romans road or some of these wonderful aids that people have used over over lots of years to share Christ with people. Do you generally go to one of those systems or one of those uh, aids to you know share the gospel with someone or do you kind of do it your own way? What do you recommend? I kind of do my own way in a hybrid of several of them. Uh, what I encourage my friends to do is just start by memorizing one of them. It may be the Romans Road, which is four verses, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so I don't always say all four of those. I don't always go in the right order, but I wanted to include about three models that Christians used to be trained in 20 years ago, yeah. uh, 30 years ago with the expansive uh, campus crusade and the navigators. And I just say, learn some of those methods, expand upon it, uh, and some believers today may want to start just by memorizing John three sixteen and those four verses in Romans. And, and from there, uh, as the conversation leads, they can incorporate other things as well. Yeah. What I really love about some of those aids, the Romans Road is my favorite in particular, although they're all great. So you can use whatever is appropriate for the time. But what's great about that is it boils the gospel down to four easily memorizable verses, if you want to say it that way. And you're yeah. using scripture as the authority. I think that sometimes it becomes a little difficult if you're trying to talk to somebody and just make it about, oh, are you empty in your life? Or, you know, do you lack purpose and meaning? And then you just, well, Jesus died for you. There's something about using the Bible itself to proclaim that truth that has more power than anything I could say. And, and that, you know, it seems like that hybrid is really important. I agree with you. And I, I think it's very important. It's, uh, we want to share the good news as well, but there's, we're living in a culture where a lot of people don't think they're sinning. There's nothing, uh, they're like, I'm fine with God. And those first verses in Romans emphasize that we've sinned. Right. Now, one of the things that I do in this is, and I have adapted this from the navigators, is I, is I show a bridge analogy that really kind of slows down Romans 6.23. And I use a, a diagram and and uh, your listeners can just see that on YouTube if they just say uh, bridge analogy uh, and just search for it. Uh, they can see that we can explain Romans 6.23 by explaining what the word sin means. Yeah. What does it mean? Um, what is a wage? And these are terms that we can just slow down and even just draw a quick little picture or show them a short little video to explain the gospel. But you're right, and I write a chapter on the, in this book about helping people to understand the sin problem. And uh, because it's very important that before we share the good news, people understand their need for the gospel. Yeah, and it's increasingly the case that people have never read the Bible. People are losing their familiarity with the Bible in ways that maybe our grandparents you know, knew way more about the Bible than a lot of people today. Even if they didn't go to church, they knew it. And and that's that's a struggle then because you have to take certain concepts that are basic to understanding uh, what Jesus did for us and explain them. Sin is one of them. Salvation. Now, when you're explaining salvation to somebody and, and that, that person might say, I don't, what exactly am I saved for? from, and you've explained sin, but how do you explain the concept of salvation to somebody who has no Bible knowledge? 
Well, I think with that person there is, is first I start to try to find some common ground. Like, for example, I was remember I was walking on the street of St. John's and saw these animal rights activists. And I stopped and I asked the question. They were, they were paying, they were students. They were saying, we'll pay you a dollar if you watch this film. And it was a film of all these horrible things being done to animals. Yes. And I said, sure, I'll watch that film if you're willing to watch mine. Now, what I was going to do is I was going to kind of shift this conversation to the abortion issue and, and allow them to kind of discover. But I asked the person at first if they believed that there was anything that was really objectively morally right or wrong. And they said, no, they were moral relativists. So first I start there with kind of like a pre-evangelism, like an apologetic to try to establish some common ground. This is what C.S. Lewis does in Mere Christianity. If the person says there is no right and wrong, um, C.S. Lewis says that same person will go back onto it a moment later and they'll start saying, well, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. <laughs> and I try to find something like that. Very soon, these people were talking about animal rights. They believed that abortion was morally good, but that killing animals is morally wrong. And I said, if there is something that is really right and really wrong, what is the basis? So this is a philosophical argument. Now, if I say, from this point, we try to say, well, where do these moral values come from? And if the person is an agnostic, I ask them, and I did this here at Ohio State. I asked this um, young woman and this, this uh, man who was dressed like a woman. I said, <laughs> if there are moral absolutes, where did they come from? They said, well, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a God or not. I said, would you be open-minded uh, to some evidence for God's existence? And so that's what I did. And after they become open-minded uh, and you give some arguments for God's existence, I go to the Scripture and I share with them the Romans Road, and I will cite that. And I'll talk about Jesus and, and quote his words, because he, um, you know, can change lives. And a lot of people will be drawn to his moral goodness even if they're skeptical about the Bible. That's good. I'm glad you said that because that kind of gives us a, a you know a, an analogy and an example to use when we run into people, not necessarily a man wearing a dress or anything like that. Though these mm-hmm. days, who knows, you might run into one uh, when you turn around. You never know. But this is good. This is really good. What about the issue of discouragement? Dave, I just want to get your take on that because I think there are many Christians who will get their guts up to go and share the gospel and do what you've just said. And then they feel disappointed if the person has no interest or rejects them outright or makes fun of them. And then they say, oh, I'm so defeated and deflated. I don't want to do this again and go through this. How do you deal with discouragement if you get a bad result? You know, I, I talk about this in, uh, in the book, and I, and I need to remind myself of this because even though I share some success stories, I share stories about people placing their faith in Christ, I've also been rejected a whole lot. And one of the things that I, I talk about here is that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, you're blessed when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Yeah. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward that is in heaven. So when we are persecuted, I think it's Mark Cahill who said, it's a win-win-win every single way if we're if someone rejects us, it's a win because they've rejected us for the sake of the gospel. Now, there's another possibility, and that is we've planted a seed. We may not know it 
but we've planted a seed, and that person may start thinking about some of the things that we said, even though they're not converted. Right. Where what Greg Kokel says, we put a kind of put a pebble in their shoe, and it kind of has allowed them to stop to really think about what we said. And then sometimes we're surprised, and that person wants to come to faith in Jesus. And I've seen this at times when I've taken groups of students out there to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes I myself have had some awkward conversations, even though I'm seminary trained. And my students, who don't have the experience I do, are pleasantly surprised of how God used them just to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Well, that is encouraging. You can find out more in Jesus Conversations, the book from Dave Starr at DisruptiveTruth.com is his website. Thank you so much, Dave. Keep up the good work in evangelism. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Thank you so much. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer Today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I tell you, it's very difficult to choose among all of the stories that are hitting the headlines on a daily basis and say, which horror is the most horrible? I I know that sounds really depressing, but when you're trying to keep people updated on things they might not see on the front page of your mainstream journalistic outlets, then you have to make choices. So I have chosen to highlight what is going on right now with James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. As you know, I have played a lot of Project Veritas's undercover videos over the years because I think they are doing some of the most important journalism in America right now because they're actually doing journalism. The big outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of these networks that we have stopped relying on for many years now because they're so far to the left, they have squandered their duties as journalists, and they did it a long time ago. So even though now and then they have some stories that might be true, overall their bent is fed by the DNC. And so we, we already know this. They have lost their reputations. They are activists. They are not journalists. And it's got to be difficult for people who are working inside those outlets who still have some modicum of journalistic ethics. So I have been a very big, strong, verbal supporter of Project Veritas. You might have heard what happened just a few days ago. James O'Keefe had his home raided, a pre-dawn raid, as if he's some kind of mafioso. And he and his attorney were on with Fox News's Sean Hannity just a few days ago. I, I want to play some of this audio so you can get an overall picture of what happened to James O'Keefe. And there's just a lot more to add on to this. So let's first begin with James O'Keefe talking about what the FBI did to him in this raid. This is cut one. I woke up to a pre-dawn raid uh, banging on my door. I went to the door to answer the door and there were 10 FBI agents with a battering ram, uh, white blinding lights. They turned me around, handcuffed me and threw me against the hallway. Uh, I was partially clothed in front of my neighbors Uh, They confiscated my phone. They raided my apartment. On my phone were many of my reporter's notes, 
a lot of my sources unrelated to this story, and a lot of confidential donor information to our news organization, Sean. So I, I've heard the phrase, the process is the punishment. I didn't really understand what that meant until this weekend. And, and I wouldn't wish this on any journalist. Nobody would. Doesn't that sound like he's some kind of horrible criminal? What was his crime? They obtained what is supposed to be Ashley Biden's diary. Ashley Biden, the daughter of the president, that Ashley Biden. And this actually came out a little while ago. The National File had reported on Ashley Biden's alleged diary and people already knew about it. Project Veritas decided not to go with the story. They turned it over to local law enforcement. You would think that would be the end of it. But then James O'Keefe's home gets raided. And not only his home, but some other, I guess, former Project Veritas operatives. I don't want to say operatives, but uh, people who had worked with Project Veritas before. What is the FBI doing raiding journalists' homes? And people were asking about this on social media. Well, wait a minute. Why aren't they talking about what's in Ashley Biden's diary? And if it actually is Ashley Biden's diary, and this seems to confirm that they believe it is, if they are acting this way, they're trying to get the president's daughter's diary out of the hands of journalists. Can you imagine them doing this if the New York Times had a hold of it and was about to do a story or decided not to do a story? Ah, the New York Times comes into this story in just a few moments. What was in Ashley Biden's diary? Well, among the things that were alleged to have been in her alleged diary, because we don't know if it's actually Ashley Biden's diary. We'll see as time goes along. But in the diary of whomever wrote it, it's actually somewhat salacious. And I wouldn't necessarily get into all of the details. But there is a tie there because it's newsworthy, especially for conservative journalists, because if it's true, there are some questions that perhaps need to be asked of the president of the United States. Seems like a story for everybody, doesn't it? Seems like there should be major journalism outlets, newspapers, networks looking into whether or not this really is Ashley Biden's diary and wanting to confirm this. I don't believe for a moment that these these journalists at these top outlets don't possess the skills to get to the bottom of that. But instead, the New York Times is going after James O'Keefe. I want to play a little bit more of this audio, though. Let's go to what Paul Kelly, his attorney, had to say when asked, you know, you guys didn't take the diary, right? And this is what he said, cut to. An anonymous source contacted Project Veritas and indicated the source had in its lawful possession a copy of the diary that the source said belonged to Ashley Biden. Project Veritas had no prior contact with the source. Source had a lawyer. The lawyer engaged in negotiations with Veritas's in-house counsel in the resulting written agreement, like so many news organizations do, Veritas, uh, the, the, the source again affirmed that it had lawful possession of the source material. In exchange for that, Veritas agreed to pay money for the right to publish the material. As you know, Sean, uh, Veritas never did. It killed the story on the newsroom floor. It went a step further and it turned the material into local law enforcement. The actions of President Biden's Department of Justice in this case are unprecedented. Now, they also discussed what the charges were. This is cut three. The search warrant has misprison of a felony, accessory after the fact, 
and transporting material across state lines as the basis for raiding the home of a journalist and seizing his work papers and journalist notes. Um, I would assume both of you are pretty familiar with Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers case and the New York Times obtaining uh, stolen top secret documents that they were publishing. They actually set a precedent in the U.S. Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision that said they had the right to publish it even though that was stolen material. It's entirely similar. There's no exception to Mr. O'Keefe and Project Veritas. The right to take the material knowing it was stolen, the right to seek comment, the right to investigate, and ultimately the right to publish. This is outrageous and unprecedented. One more cut. James O'Keefe issuing a warning to Americans about the attack here on the First Amendment and urging journalists to get behind him. This is what he said. Cut four. They've crossed the bridge here. Uh, of, if they can do this to me, um, these are about certain principles that are so fundamental. Our First Amendment in this country, I, I'm calling upon all journalists to, to take a stand against this. A source comes to us with information. I don't even decide to publish it. If they can do this to me, if they can do this to this journalist and raid my home and take my reporter notes, they'll do it to any journalist. This is about something very fundamental in this country. I, I don't know what direction this country is going in, but, 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 but journalists everywhere have to rise up because we broke no laws here. They could do it to me. They'll do it to anybody. Well, as a former journalist myself, I support James O'Keefe and I am appalled by what the FBI is doing to him. Here's why. They wouldn't do it to anybody. They wouldn't do it to just anybody. You know they wouldn't do it to just anybody, and so do I. They go after conservatives. They go after Project Veritas because Project Veritas is busting people. They're busting people effectively. They're doing undercover videos, and they're doing them legally. Now, what comes into play here that makes it a twist is the fact that the New York Times on November 11th publishes a story, Project Veritas and the line between journalism and political spying, and they put out there that they have internal documents obtained by the New York Times revealing the extent to which Project Veritas has worked with its lawyers to gauge how far its deceptive reporting practices can go before running afoul of federal law. Well, that's weird. How did the New York Times instantaneously almost get internal documents, memos involving their communications with their lawyer? That seems odd, doesn't it? Because the FBI, the feds have these documents were they fed over to the New York Times? How did they obtain them? It's very interesting, especially when you consider that the New York Times is involved in litigation with Project Veritas because Project Veritas sued them. We'll get into that when we come back. Very, very troubling story. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody says. 
This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something I give me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of 2019? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. You might have heard that the FBI raided the home, a pre-dawn raid on James O'Keefe's home to get these phones and, and basically try to rough up Project Veritas. Really? The FBI, I guess you got tired of going after the alleged domestic terrorist school board parents and maybe you want to turn your guns on proverbial guns, not literal guns, proverbial guns on James O'Keefe. Really? He's enemy number one? Is that the case? Well, I don't know. I don't know. They're sure weaponizing the FBI, aren't they, over in Washington, D.C. James O'Keefe is involved, by the way, with uh, a lawsuit against the New York Times, which then magically turned around after this raid and had all of these internal documents exposing their communications with their lawyers. You know, it's kind of funny because we don't know how they got these documents. Uh, some people are beginning to ask some questions, though. For example, Human Events' Will Chamberlain was commenting on this on the media, uh, on the uh, social media about this, and says the FBI raided Project Veritas on a pretext and is now leaking their privileged communications to the New York Times. This is a scandal. These are classic privileged communications. Project Veritas asked for a legal opinion on potential journalistic activities. That opinion is a privileged communication. No idea what the New York Times was thinking here. This reporter should be subpoenaed tomorrow and forced to reveal his criminal source. We'll see if that happens. He says, I didn't even think about the fact that Project Veritas is currently in litigation with the New York Times. Makes it all the more appalling that the New York Times would be publishing Veritas's privileged communications. If the New York Times has these memos, why wouldn't it also have Project Veritas's privileged communications that relate directly to Project Veritas's lawsuit 
against the times. This is just a massive, massive scandal. And he concludes by typing out here. This is on Twitter. The New York Times. uh, This isn't journalism. This is straight up theft. This is what he said. Now, going over to the Daily Mail reporting on this. Here's the headline. The FBI is tipping off the New York Times about its raids. Lawyer for Project Veritas boss James O'Keefe suggests feds are breaking the law by handling, handing, Privileged legal communications to Times journalists for hit piece. Hmm. This is quite interesting, isn't it? Harmeet Dillon, actually, who we've had on the show before, is involved now. She's she's a wonderful attorney. And it says here that this attorney for the founder of Project Veritas has accused the Department of Justice of tipping off the New York Times about recent raids on current and former employees, while suggesting federal prosecutors may have also leaked the group's legal communications. goes into a little bit of background here, the fact that the New York Times published a report based on memos from the group's lawyer, revealing his legal advice on the group's use of false identities and undercover filming, things like that. Later that day... A federal judge ordered the Department of Justice to stop extracting data from the phones, granting a request from O'Keefe's legal team made the day before for an independent party to be appointed to oversee the review of the confiscated devices. Harmeet Dillon, in an interview, slammed the Times report as a hit piece and questioned whether the DOJ had leaked the legal memos to the Times, an extraordinary and possibly illegal step. Dylan said, I can't say how the New York Times got this information, but they got it in a way that is illegal and unethical. We have a disturbing situation of the U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI tipping off the New York Times to each of the raids on Project Veritas's current and former employees. Well, remember, wasn't it the Roger Stone bust where they had this pre-dawn raid and there were like 50 million cops moving in? All right, I'm exaggerating. There were tons of police surrounding Roger Stone's home as if he was going to come out shooting. And what do you know? The CNN cameras just happened to be at Roger Stone's home, catching the moment on camera. And people are like, oh, really? So what's happening now? You have the FBI calling CNN and tipping him off. Mm, sure looked that way. Dylan says, we know that about this tip off because minutes after these raids occurred, they got calls from the New York Times, which was the only journalism outlet that knew about it. And they published this hit piece today, which is really despicable. I don't think I've ever seen this low from the New York Times before to publish people's private legal communications. This is a scandal of epic proportions. Every journalist who is not worried about this should hang up their journalism card and all First Amendment lawyers as well. So it was good the judge made this decision. I think it's a massive scandal, too. It's a huge scandal. You think journalists are going to cover it? You think journalists are going to come out in favor of James O'Keefe? I mean, you see a few tepid voices showing up. Oh, this is bad. That's not so good. That's not a good look. I mean, you have a few people here and there. You're not going to have anybody coming out defending James O'Keefe. They want him gone. They want Project Veritas gone. Why? Well, he's exposed CNN. And the New York Times, this litigation I referenced earlier, I go back to a piece from Project Veritas where they talk about this lawsuit being filed last fall in response to a series of defamatory New York Times stories by political reporter Maggie Astor and media news reporter Tiffany Sue calling Veritas's Minnesota ballot harvesting videos deceptive and accusing Veritas of being part of a coordinated disinformation effort because they shared an advanced copy of the video with influencers and reporters. Conveniently left out of the New York Times story talking about these memos. What, what, what are we to make of all of this? When you have the police 
going after people for this kind of stuff, namely journalism, you now are reeking of the Soviet bloc. You are. You're reeking of the East German police. Uh, you you look at what the FBI has been involved in in the last few years, and it is shocking. People have talked about the need to disband. Why would you disband it? If you disbanded it, all that would happen is they would form a new pseudo FBI with a new name and the same people. What do you do? You have so much corruption in Washington. What do you do? Try to find an honest man out there, an honest woman out there. I don't know if you can. And maybe I'm just a little bit jaded, but that's what's going on. When you lose real journalism, you guys have already seen it. You've already seen what happens when you lose real journalism. It's why there's so many people fighting, like I am on Christian Talk Radio. Others are fighting on the internet. Others are fighting, you know, with individual websites and blogs and YouTube videos. And what's happening to them? They're getting canceled. They're getting shut down. Their YouTube videos are being thrown off. Their accounts are being dismantled. They are being shadow banned and silenced on social media. The politicians do nothing about it. You don't really want to live in a country, folks, where you don't have journalists who will tell the truth. You already have seen how corrupt our media is and how in bed they are with the DNC. And you know what that is doing. You know what happened during the 2020 election and why it was that you had President Trump going around to all of these rallies with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people and Biden lucky to get five people socially distanced in masks watching him eat ice cream cones. I mean, really, he had 80 million votes and we can go back to all of that. But the media orchestrated it. It's why the media also will not go after the Biden family. This goes back to the whole thing with Ashley Biden. They wouldn't even touch the Hunter Biden story. They shut down the New York Post on Twitter for releasing all of that bombshell information about Hunter Biden and about his laptop. You didn't even get to really see that unless you were determined that you were going to find the original source, the New York Post, and read it for yourself. Most people, it went right over their heads. This is where we are. They don't want to know about whether or not that diary really belongs to Ashley Biden. Get to the bottom of that. That's the story. That's the story. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. Let me tell you something. I've mentioned this name before, and to a lot of Americans, nobody even knows who she is. Anna Politkovskaya, and she was a very brave journalist in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. And she did a lot of reporting about human rights abuses in Chechnya and did a lot of reporting on Putin and did a lot of exposing wrongdoing in that whole situation. And she was gunned down. She was killed. To this day, her murder has not been solved. But that's what it costs real journalists in places like that, where functionally they behave very similarly to the way they behaved when they were the USSR. That's what happens to real journalists. Look what happens to real journalists and real politicians who go up against the drug cartels in Mexico. You pay with your life sometimes. But you know, it doesn't begin with that sort of stuff. It begins, unfortunately, with patterns of intimidation and patterns of trying to shut down people who are telling the truth. That's the stage we're in. I hope and pray we don't get to the next stage. I really do. And I, I don't even want to think about it. But folks, we're in a very dangerous position as a nation. 
And I think that we should all be praying for James O'Keefe and for Project Veritas and for all other journalists who are willing to tell the truth, irrespective of their own political beliefs, because that's what it takes to be a good journalist. You have to be willing to tell the truth and apply the same ethical principles to both sides of the aisle or all sides of the aisle. That's your job. And I think we have to uphold the First Amendment in this country and fight for it. We're going to have to fight for it because, as we know, freedom isn't free. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with you next time here on Janet Mefford Today. Mm -hmm.